the way I look at it is, is that money is a story. And if money is a story, then he who tells the best story will change money. And I believe the story of you get paid for doing healthy habits is a damn good story. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, I'm David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Can you change your behavior by giving yourself an electric shock? What if it's a signal triggered remotely by a friend, a coach, or even an app? Manish Sethi tells us that 90% of the people who go through a five-day training period with his Pavlock wristband are able to break habits or create new ones. In this episode of Hack the Process, Manish will tell us the six basic habits he encourages people to work on first, why he's shifted his focus from growth to adoption, and how the stories we tell ourselves about what money represents can either limit or expand our options. Today I'm speaking with Manish Sethi, and he's the CEO of Pavlock. Manish, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to chat. It's good to meet you. So Pavlock, I've been hearing a little bit about this for the last couple of years, and it seems to be a behavior modification system, right? Yeah, our company's focus is around helping people stick to the goals they set for themselves. So we started off by creating a wearable device called Pavlock that utilizes vibration, beep, and even electric zaps to help you form good habits, break bad habits, and wake up early. And it's something that you control yourself. Yeah, you set the goals, control it either through the app or you can hook it up with a bunch of software integrations. So for example, if you are wasting time online on a specific website, you can program in the website and the website will automatically send you a vibration or a zap. Or you can give access to a friend or a coach who's able to hold you accountable. I'm reminded of some of those behavioral experiments I saw done with rats, where they would put a rat in a case and have another rat's random movements cause yeah. electric shocks and create depression and anxiety. Yeah, those, those are some use cases for it. But in the same way that electric shock can create anxiety, can help reduce and remove anxiety too. Really what it does is it's a stimulus. It's not like a punisher. So a stimulus that snaps you out of automatic mode and brings you into the present in a sense of a lot of people will use it when they're having negative thoughts or having anxious thoughts. And they'll simply press the button on the device. If you look at it from the brain science perspective, it knocks you out of basal ganglia automatic mode and brings you into prefrontal cortex in the present mode snaps you out of sort of an automatic being and makes you sit in the present. It's it, it's kind of like, is vibration good or bad? Is sound good or bad? It's very hard to define that because it doesn't make any sense. In the same way that is electric zap good or bad, it can be utilized as a massaging touch or it can be utilized as a very painful stop doing this sensation. It's all about kind of the goals and the use case. It's true. And I think people can even be trained to feel that pain itself might not be a bad. It's not necessarily a bad signal. It's just a signal and it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. And that's one of the core parts of our product is that around one of the main use cases is for quitting addictions or bad habits. And we have a five-day program where you do something called aversive conditioning or aversion therapy. And that's where you do a bad habit for five minutes a day while you receive a zap. So smoking a cigarette, for example, or biting your nails while you get zapped while you do it. Yeah, it sucks. It's those five minutes are very uncomfortable and they're not friendly. But your brain creates a Pavlovian association between the two where it starts to associate the instantaneous zap with the act of smoking a cigarette. And more than half of our smokers will quit smoking 
within five days when we follow up with them at six months and one year later. And so the question is, yeah, is that pain of the zap? Sure, it's not pleasant. That's the point. But is that pain more or less valuable than quitting smoking? Whereas, so like, yeah, it, sometimes, you know, it requires a little bit of pain to go through and receive the rewards that you want. Right. And I've heard of people doing things like that with like rubber bands around their wrists or things like that. It's like a smart rubber band that doesn't leave bloody welts in that use case. Yeah. <laughs> It's nice not to get the bloody welts. And the yeah. smart part is, I think, one of the things that's most interesting, because as you said, it sounds like it can be tied into apps. I think there's even a Chrome extension that lets you tie it into web browsing. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we have it integrated through If This Then That. There's like a couple hundred use cases around, or like, for example, if I need to get to, like it, it hooks in, somebody wrote a really cool integration that's about, it hooks in with your Google Calendar. So like it looks at the location of your Google Calendar where you need to go. And so 10 minutes before you need to leave, it sends you a vibration. And then if you haven't left on time, it sends you a zap and it automatically texts the other person on who's saying, hey, I'm running a few minutes late. So like that use case is pretty cool. Nail biting, a hand motion detection. So it knows, that, knows when you bring your hands to your face and it starts to beep or zap as you bring your hands to your face. Those are all cool integrations. I wrote one that if I curse while at my computer, it sends me an instantaneous app. So I rarely curse around here anymore. Does it recognize your voice as you speak then? Yeah, but it doesn't. It recognizes anybody's voice. So I've had my, my team come up and just yell curse words at my screen. And then suddenly I get hurt. So we don't do that anymore. <laughs> That'll train you never to hire a team like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you, so it sounds like you do work with a team then. One of the things I always ask folks who founded companies is what their organization looks like and how they keep track of what's going on with the organization. Sure, we've gone through a few phases. So before I started Pavlock, I ran a blog, a travel hacking blog that gave me the idea for this product. And so it was just me. Around 2013, I founded the company and I started building a team. Hardware is a little bit of a different beast than most other like online companies. You know, if you think about like a startup, you often think of like two guys in a room or in a garage writing software. If I had two guys in a room, we could recreate Snapchat, for example. That's not an extremely difficult piece of software, at least to build a, a pretty cool prototype of. But if you take a hardware product, yeah, you still need those two guys in the room to make your, your Android and your Apple app. But you're also going to need an electrical engineer, a mechanical engineer. You're going to need an industrial designer to build the prototype version. They need a supply chain manager and a manufacturer to build the products. Then you need to have fulfillment, shipping, and inventory handled. And then you need to have support and all that other stuff handled. And that's just to get one you know, unit out. So when I started off the company, uh, you know, it was just me. I had no idea what I was doing. I was lucky to be invested in by a startup incubator called Bolt. They were based out of Boston. They gave me support with electrical engineering and design help. Basically, my first year or so, we, we went from zero to five employees, then from five to 25. Then we, I think we capped out around 25 on year three. And then year four and five, we slowly started to pivot away from being an R&D-based organization. A lot of the first three years were put into building the hardware and designing the hardware and all that firmware stuff. But we started to slowly kind of found a manufacturer who also can do design and industrial work uh, as well as manufacturing. And so I started to move a lot of my hardware and R&D departments over to them and focus a lot on just software in-house, customer support in-house, and marketing in-house. So now our team has dropped from 25 to maybe six or seven people. And it's a lot easier to manage a six or seven person company, but it doesn't move as fast as it used to in the sense that we're not just doing stuff all the time. I think we're faster in one direction, but we're not doing as much all the time. So there's pros and cons certainly to both sides.
as the founder, I guess it, it kind of changes your role from managing people to managing vendor relations. Yeah, in a way, for sure. I, I think in a lot of a lot of ways, like I kind of I'm a very bad manager. I'm a very good leader, but a bad manager. <laughs> I find those differently. I think a manager's job is to speak to many people, you know, holding weekly one-on-ones, making sure that the instructions are given to individuals very targeted towards what their personality and what their capabilities are. So a manager speaks to many. And a leader, on the other hand, he speaks to one. He's the North Star. He has that one major vision that the entire organization is going to go towards. And the manager's job is to read what the leader is doing and convert those that one single instruction into manageable actions for each of his people below him. And so for the longest time at our company, I ran the company as a leader, managers, staff organization. But I found that, well, first of all, it costs a lot to do that. Having you know an extra layer of uh, bureaucracy also causes slowdowns and in internal politics. And so in the last year and a half or so, I started moving out our manager roles and focusing more on, I guess, basically just cutting out the whole middleman staff, getting rid of our management team and having me manage people directly. It's not ideal. I don't think I'm very good at it, but it's definitely not my zone of genius. But it was what we needed to do in the last year. And it's definitely sped up things as we as I'm working directly with our with our programmers and vendors, for example. It sounds like you're looking at this as kind of an intermediate stage towards something else. This is not where we end. Yeah, no, my, my vision is very large. The ultimate goal of the company is to be, well, we're, our, our ultimate goal is that there's a padlock on every single person's wrist in the same way that Bill Gates made that audacious goal of having a PC on every single person's desktop. And I fundamentally believe that we have created a solution to addiction that with above 90% effectiveness that people can quit any addiction they want to. All they need to do is utilize the product properly and go through the, the first seven days plus be checked up on for the first three months. And so with that process in mind, I think the, the results are massive. The ramifications are massive. But, you know, it's a lot easier to invent the future than it is to describe it. And definitely a lot easier than it is to sell it. So where we are right now is a very small intermediate stage. Over the last year, a big focus we had was on, on getting to profitability. With hardware companies, it's notoriously hard to get to profitability. We hit it. I think three or four months ago. And the fastest way to get to profitability is to cut expenses, unfortunately. We used to spend somewhere in the range of like $120,000 a month on people, which is, you know, it's expensive. It's a lot of money. So I realized that after we built our hardware, finalized the device, my dreams, I'm like a hardware product guy. I want to build fast products, but they take a year to build and they cost, you know, a million dollars plus to build one V1, you know, one product. And so in order to get to where we wanted to go, I wanted to achieve profitability first. So I cut our staff a lot over the last year and focused on what happens when you cut staff is your revenue drops, but your expenses drop faster. And then I, once we had a, a stable you know, break even, started increasing ad spend and marketing in order to get our revenue back to where it was. So as of this month, as of the, this is April, so as, as of this month, we're back up to our top revenue that we used to be at. Top line revenue is still high. Bottom line profit is much higher than it used to be. It's actually profitable, which is great. And so now this this year, we'll probably sort of focus on paying down debt and staying like afloat. And next year, we'll start growing. What I like to do is, is to grow rapidly. So it's easy to say things. Who knows what actually happens? But I expect that by 2021, we'll be in the 200 to 500 person range of staff. Okay. And it's it, something that you're comfortable moving back towards. It's like, it seems like the management side of things. Super uncomfortable, but you know, you got to lean in sometimes. Yeah. It's very, very comfortable to like, I mean, it's very, very, I was talking to my friends about this today. It's like, so just to give like a idea, like, I don't, I don't mind usually talking about numbers. So it's like, we started the company and ended up losing, you know, somewhere between 200 and $600,000 a year, which is a lot of money. And a lot of it was, you know, it was investor money. I raised about half a million dollars. So, and then 
after the investor money ran out, I put in all of my like, my life money. So like all my retirement accounts and all that stuff. So for the first three years, we're losing some, we, you know, we lost you know, 50K the first year, something like 500K the third year, something like that. At some point I was like, holy crap, this is actually starting to get really bad. Like there's no way out of this. And it's a lot harder to raise money when you're like out of money than it is when you are talking about ideas and what could be. You know, when you're losing 500K a year, that's like 50K a month in losses. It's a lot. And so when we reduced expenses and brought it back up now, I think now we're averaging around 50 to 60K in profit, which is a lot more. I've got like four to six months of debt in total to pay back. Although a lot of that is like serviceable. It's, you know, it should, it doesn't matter if I paid off now or not. But to me, there's a lot of value in, you know, I don't know if it's the right way or not. A lot of my friends who are venture capitalist companies will argue that paying off debt is a waste of time and profit is a waste of time and focusing just on top line growth is the only thing that matters. And I waver back and forth. But to me, I can see a much clearer future in which we have little or no debt and complete freedom and the ability to to scale at our own pace. Basically, from my perspective, we don't have any competitors. So I have the luxury of being able to be slow. But the second that we start getting competitors, we'll have to start replaying the way that we we, we approach this uh, financial finances. Well, competitors can sniff out profits. And when they start seeing profits, that's when they start coming out of the woodwork. But one of the things that's interesting about the way you frame that is uh, how people feel about debt. It feels like people who are uncomfortable with debt don't understand the value of leveraging the money of other people in order to make things happen. Yeah, absolutely. They don't understand. Well, yeah, there's like people have a lot of um, ethical, not ethical, but like they think of money as kind of a moral source of good and bad. If they are out of debt, they're, they're ethically more clean than someone who's in debt. You know, I think that makes a lot of sense when you're like, like for example, IRAs. They used to make a lot. Of, like, I, my brother wrote a book called "I Will Teach You to Be Rich," and it's all about how to invest money into yourself. And it's always about maxing out your your Roth IRA and putting as much as you can into your four hundred one k or SEP IRA. And I totally believe that. I mean, he's totally right in the sense of compound interest is the biggest if you start when you're in your early twenties and blah blah blah. But man, if I'm not rich by the time I'm fifty five, then I fucked up, right? <laughs> like, if my corporation isn't generating more than my five thousand dollars a month Roth IRA is generating at the end of my life, then I really fucked up. Because like the max you can put into a Roth IRA is five k a year. Maybe it's fifty five or six thousand now. And so if you if you leverage that out across all the compounding across you know fifty years, like yeah, it's a lot more than you put in. You know, it's like five x or six x the actual dollar amount you put in thanks to compounding effects. You know, so let's say that that's five million dollars. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly, but let's say it's five million dollars. You know, I mean, I sh- like the last year we generated two million in revenue in my company. So the value of $5 million makes a lot of sense if you have a very steady basis of income from a company doing, you know, if you're, if you're getting a 30 or 40 or 50 or 60K per year salary and it's never going to go up and maybe you do some consulting on the side that might, you know, increase it by 20% or something, then yeah, put your money in a Roth IRA and save it for the future, right? But on the other hand, the way I always looked at the world is that there are two layers, like there's a risk and then there's reward. And first of all, optimize like for your downside to be covered. The way I always look at the world is it's cover your ass. So optimize your downside. So make sure that you have no fear of the worst that can happen. And then the second is to take the, the things that you have and put them into high risk ventures that could have huge capacity for, for massive levels of success. So if you take that step back, like I'm a little bit, I'm definitely a lot different than my brother. And I'm definitely a weird guy, but like I always grew up following like stoicism and I always grew up following sort of a bunch of different modalities towards viewing the world. And one that always resonated with me was to do more with less. And in particular, there's this quote by Seneca where he says, every year live your greatest fear for two weeks so you can see that your biggest fear is nothing really to be afraid of whatsoever. So I took that to heart uh, in my early 20s. 
I thought of what my biggest fear is. My biggest fear is having nothing in modern civilization. And so I embarked on like a 28-day wilderness survival course where I lived in the woods for 28 days with a couple people. We had no backpack, no sleeping bag, no tent. We tried to survive. We tried to eat off the land. We hiked 30 miles a day or 20 miles a day or so. And I found that that's probably one of the best times of my life. Probably one of the best parts of my life was the time when I had no money, no access to capital whatsoever. Many, I, a couple times, uh, last year was one of them. I went without any money for a period of time to see how, what it's like to have to live when you have no cash. And it sucks, but it's fine. At the end of the day, time still passes whether you have money or you don't. And so I also got rid of all my belongings about three years ago, and I lived completely out of one backpack. And so my biggest fear, there's no loss. Like, you can't kill me if I can't be killed. Companies die when the CEOs or when the founders stop. They only die when the founders stop. And to me, there's no way you can make my company die unless you make me die. That's like the big focus is covering my downside. So getting to profitability is covering my ass, covering my downside, making sure that there is no leverage that can be used against me is covering my downside. You know, I own the mass majority of the company and we're paying off as much of the debt as we can. So now my downside is covered. And now the next step is to take the, the, the profits that we have and invest them in high risk, high reward ventures. So those involve like going after medical markets because our product is really, really effective to help the quit addiction. That involves going after currency markets. I believe that our we have a currency that is currently like a point system. It's called volts. You earn them for doing positive habits. The ultimate goal is that it becomes a cryptocurrency where you actually mine coin by doing healthy habits. So you get paid to do good habits. Those are very, very unlikely events to occur. But if, if we have our downside protected and we have enough time, then one of them is likely to hit. And that will be the one that takes the company and the world to the next level. Yeah, I saw your TED talk about Volts, and it sounded very, you know, very future looking, very optimistic. And I was curious, I'd love to double click on that one and find out a little bit more about what's going on with it. Yeah, it's very, very deep to me. And I believe it's the biggest impact I would have in the world. So I mean, to start with, can you explain to folks what, what Volts are and how it works? Sure. If you take a step back, I kind of talk about this in the TED talk. People think of money as a real thing. People don't realize that it's a representation of trust. Human beings have been around for 7 million years and money's only been around for 3,000 years. It's a relatively new invention, and it kind of allows human beings to communicate without speaking the same language. It's a representation of trust that allows you to, to talk to people you don't know and have them trust you and give them things that you want. And so from a deeper understanding or first principle understanding of what money is, it kind of made me understand that there's a, a fundamental flaw in what money has become. Money as it is right now is a story, a story of trust. It's a story that you get paid for doing what somebody else wants you to do. It's like if your boss wants you to do something, he gives you money for it. And that story makes a lot of sense when you have oats and I have lambs and we want to trade, right? That makes a lot of sense. But something changed in the last hundred years or so where suddenly the poorest people are the ones who have the most food, where suddenly there's an oversupply and a lack of demand in a lot of ways. And where some of the poorest people in America are still able to enjoy air conditioning and Netflix and things that allow them to pass their time without requiring them to actually do work. But the problem is that our entire, moral, our entire moral standard is driven by this idea that basically money is good and that if you don't have, if you're not working, then you're bad. It used to be just an American ideal, but now it's, it's rapidly globalized into the whole world. And my view is that we've kind of broken, there's a big flaw in the system. The flaw is that money has become, you know, overcapitalized. There's too much money all being concentrated in the wrong places that aren't being utilized in a way that is proper for economics. Mainly the point being that there's too much money. Money is stored in, in, in fake forms, and they're overly collapsing the wealthy into banks. Basically, if you look at the derivative market, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. It's just talking too much. 
But uh, <laughs> if you watch my TED Talk, Google Manish TED Talk, you'll see it. It's a good TED Talk. I recommend it. I'll, I'll put the link to it in the show notes. Thank you. But the point being that I believe that right now money is a system of you get paid for what other people want you to do. And in the future, what it should be and what it could be is that you get paid for doing what you want yourself to do. So I believe that we've created a system that allows you to get paid for doing healthy habits. Imagine walking 10,000 steps and suddenly on your wristband, on your wearable, which is tracking your steps, you hear a ding and now you can go to any restaurant and pay with your wrist to, to purchase a salad or some healthy food item because of the steps that you've walked. You no longer need a wallet. You no longer need a Visa card. You no longer need cash. You can simply be, do good things and earn the things that you want that you need from those healthy actions. That's kind of the ultimate goal of what I'm trying to create. And I believe we've created a system that will make it work. But this is one of those things that takes years and a lot of capital in order to make the whole thing be pulled off. So it's sort of like level three in my three-level process of changing the world. And it's not even all that fanciful or unrealistic. I mean, when you think about what China is doing right now with their imposed morality system based on how people behave and the systems that how people rate each other, something similar in there. Something similar. I'm not, I don't want to... I don't want to conflate those two for you. <laughs> social credit system, it's a, a lot different than that. In the sense that <laughs> I think a good example is like if you look at WePay, China's really all-in-one payment system. And if you combine that with, you know, positive wearables like Fitbit or, or uh, Apple Watch, and you combine that, think of Apple Pay where you earn money for, for hitting your, your movement and your exercise goals. That's sort of what I'm looking at. If Apple Pay allowed you to, to, to earn money for doing healthy habits. And I don't think it's that fanciful notion. And I think that there's a, that economies kind of work in a very interesting way. And right now is this magical time of financing where money has become decoupled from both real assets like gold as well as governmental assets like the dollar. Suddenly money can be created and transmitted in multiple variety of ways that don't require a government's approval. The way I look at it is, is that money is a story. And if money is a story, then he who tells the best story will change money. And I believe the story of you get paid for doing healthy habits is a damn good story. And so I believe that that is one that could and should win, and I think would have a massive impact upon the entire world. And by win, I mean becomes a very useful thing that many millions of people can use. I don't mean it destroys the dollar by any means. I mean that it becomes something exchangeable against the dollar. But the core being that if someone achieves the healthy habits of the big six every day, the big six habits I have are drink water, sleep well, eat well, exercise at least three times a week, meditate for 10 minutes a day, and have a conversation with someone you like every day. If someone achieves those big six habits every single day, they should be able to afford the, the ultimate standard of uh, average, median income American. Whether you're based in America, based in South America, based in Africa, that's our ultimate goal that we have. If someone achieves those six habits every day, they'll make somewhere around $25,000 yeah. a year. So in order to make that happen, that's a, a large ultimate goal, and that's what I'm kind of dedicating my life towards. That's kind of the ultimate goal of, of Volts and Pavla. I like the way that you frame the concept of, of money around story. And it helps people, I think, get behind the, the idea of there's something like that that might be possible where it's not, I have to get something from you in order to have money. It's more that the story is the money. Yeah, money's changed a lot. I mean, money as a whole is a story. I mean, the whole idea of a pie getting bigger is what has been happening in the last three and a half, four centuries since Adam Smith. There's a great book called Homo Deus. It's by an author called Yuval Harari. He also wrote the book Sapiens, which you might be familiar with. Yes, I have read that one. His second book delves a lot into, well, his, I guess both books delve into this, but his second book delves into how money is a pie. And until very, very recently, until Adam Smith, essentially, people always thought of money as a pie that was fixed. 
So you could only get money by taking it from other people. So if you lived in a, in a land where you wanted to, like, let's say you were a barber or a blacksmith, like you had a lot of trouble raising capital from people because they thought that there wouldn't be enough money to go around. But once Adam Smith sort of talked about how when you make money, you actually create jobs for other people. In just a few generations, it created this whole shift in mindset that there isn't a fixed economy and there isn't a fixed pie but that the pie gets larger with every transaction that's made. And this led to financiers, debtors, uh, financiers and banks, as well as governments being more willing to lend money for the first time. And once you start creating a system that allows for credit and allows for lending, things start to rapidly grow. And so that has happened over the last you know, four, three and a half, four centuries. Capitalism kind of eats growth. But in the last 100 years, the last 15 years, things are changing where massive amounts of growth are happening, but it's being all captured by small actors who aren't redistributing into the economy. So it's creating kind of a false growth. I think everybody can kind of experience and feel that right now, where rich are getting very, very, very rich on paper, but the average person is kind of having a, uh, they feel like they're stuck. And so it's a really interesting time and it's kind of a vacuum. Capitalism has worked very, very, very well. And I'm not saying it's, I think it's the best system that could have existed for the last three or 400 years. But we're in a late stage of capitalism where things are changing. You know, nature pours a vacuum. So something steps in. And that's why you can see Bitcoin stepping in right as the banks collapsed in 2008. Banks collapsed in 2008 and Bitcoin was created in 2010. Money isn't fixed anymore. It's not based on a real asset. It's just based on belief in your government and how much do we believe in our government these days. <laughs> so, you know, this is sort of a long long form conversation about, you know, the future of money and the future of volts. But uh, it's something I, I really think about a lot. And I think that I don't think very many people think about it the same way I do. People seem to be into crypto it, it, just to make money. Well, I think people are just used to the metaphor of they're just looking at it as another investment. Yeah. But the people who really understand it see that it's a shift in the way that we are approaching our economy as a whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like we can be a pretty instrumental shift if we play our cards right. You know, we have a very big potential at Pavlock to do this and to cause the max good that we possibly can. But, you know, like you were asking earlier about, or at least we're talking earlier about VC and debt and stuff. This is something I, I, that creeps up a lot because I get worried often about the fact that, you know, you get one shot at life. And I think that I have a big goal and I think that there's a huge potential of what I'm trying to do. But I have this fear of, of raising venture capital. But there has never been a company that has made impact on the world ever that didn't raise large amounts of financing ever. Mm -hmm. But the financing isn't just about the money. The financing is also about the relationships that come with it. Yeah, it comes with it by putting people into the system. They become part of the system. They start to, you know, it's really hard not to support Bitcoin when you've invested in Bitcoin, for example. It's really hard not to support a stock once you've invested in the stock. You know, I have this like this human desire to build something on my own that doesn't require investment, but boy, does it hold you back. So uh, there's a layer of, of speed Again, it's like this isn't an issue until there's really a competitor, but it is an issue. So I don't know. That's where we're at. Well, I'm not sure. It doesn't even sound like it would be an issue if there were a competitor, because it feels to me like what you're doing with Pavlok, well, not only do you have the first mover advantage in this particular situation, but you're also looking at it more as a stepping stone to some things that I think a lot of competitors wouldn't even see as being related to the mission of Pavlok itself. Yeah, I think that's very true. It's uh, one thing that we've noticed. Well, you know what? I'm not going to go talk about exactly how to compete and copy off my idea at the exact proper way. So I'll skip that train of thought. But uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, like today I was talking with a friend and we're at this point in the business where, you know, like there's this uh, weird thing with, with, at least with my business, I think with a lot of people, you know, everybody feels stress in some variety. Uh, I feel stress in a different way in the sense that I don't really feel stressed, but I feel stress. I don't know how to explain that in the sense that I don't feel bad 
sensations from stress often. You should shock yourself whenever that happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I'm trying to get at. I don't feel bad from stress. I feel good from stress. So like when we, we, we had a rough year last year as we were starting to scale and had inventory issues and we released a new product where we started to run out of cash, run out of cash very rapidly. And yeah, it sucked because we were running out of cash. But on the other hand, boy, did I know what to do. There was a very clear direction. Like, yeah, volts were cool, but they are not what we're focusing on right now. You know what we're focusing on right now? We're focusing on fucking survival, right? And so the whole company was, all right, what are we working on? All right, we're going to build a coaching program that's going to build us profit margins. Or we're going to double down on our most profitable niche, which is waking people up and alarms. We're going to double down on the system. We're going to get rid of all the staff we don't need. We're going to sell one product. We're not going to do a new product development. It was very, very clear. And although we were running out of cash and it sucked, it felt very nice because I knew what had to be done. But over the last three months, we've hit profitability. And now I feel a different kind of stress. It's almost like a boredom. It's like a, a malaise where it's like, all right, we've hit profitability. We have good numbers. We have a little bit of growth potential. But fuck, I don't know what to do. I, I know how to get from where we are to double where we are, but I've like lost the view of how where we are to 5Xing or 10Xing where we are. Whereas when we were under like mass attack from all sides, from you know revenue and inventory and all that shit, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting a battle of the Alamo. But when you suddenly have the entire open grounds ready, now it's like, oh God, how do I allocate capital without just wasting it? And it's a kind of a different stressful feeling where I'm not exactly sure exactly what path to follow next. So there's no right answer here. I've asked a few friends and it's always the same answer. It's like, bro, like wait a few months, pay off your debt, double down on what you're doing already and don't get too far ahead of yourself. And I'm like, God damn it. I know you're right, but <laughs> I don't want to do that. And so sometimes you got to take like the CEO, like it's when you're a worker at a company, it's very clear. You have clear cut tasks, do this, do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this and you get paid. When you're the CEO of a company that I have a much larger goal vision, but the stepping stones to get there are unclear. Yeah, well, and I don't think anybody could, could accuse you of not having a big, audacious, grandiose vision for where you'd like to take things. Not knowing exactly how you get from here to there, I think, is par for the course when you're, when you're in that position. Yeah. My friends always tell me, like, Manish, you know exactly how to build, how to take a $10 million company to $100 million. But fuck, man, you got to figure out how to get to $10 million. I just got zapped for saying the F word. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But no, then the experience that you bring to this, I mean, this is not the first company that you've built. Uh, this is the first like multi-person company. Okay. Yeah, I, I built like a blog, a business, a successful business off of the personal blog. But it was, you know, I was never doing in the, even the 100,000 a year. So this is the first real company. I've built multiple businesses and, and worked with other people to build their businesses. Mm -hmm. But this is the first baby of my own. Okay. And with the blog system that you that you built, was there a coaching program with that as well? Like, was there a revenue model around it? Yeah, I sold courses. Uh, I sold courses and then I, I did a small amount of private coaching. It was a profit model, but I'm not, I myself personally, I'm a very bad coach. I'm very bad at like following up and all that stuff. So that's why we, we brought in a coaching team to Pavlock. Basically last year, I found that there are several coaches that were using our product with their clients. A lot of clients that were having issues with negative self-talk, negative thoughts, and not being consistent in their daily actions and morning routines. And so I found a few coaches are actually using our product with their clients. And I talked to one. I listened to the way that she taught and used Pavlock and it was pretty awesome. The results your clients were having were fantastic. And she had sort of a system that was very aligned with, with how I focus on self-improvement. And my focus is always starting with small wins in the early morning and slowly layering on new things until a chunk, until a chunk becomes very large. So for example, when I hired my first coach, what we did is we started off with waking up at 8 a.m. and having a glass of water and sending him a text. 
and that was it. And I was like, this is too easy. He's like, bro, let's just start there. Week two, text, drink a glass of water, one minute cold shower. Week three, 10 minutes of meditation. Week four, 20 sit-ups and 20 push-ups. Week five, out the door by X o'clock. And suddenly I was getting more done by 10 a.m. than I used to get done in the whole day. By batching all these small elements together slowly but quickly, you started to create this like compounding snowball effect that led to mass success and specifically by batching all of our reactive tasks together. So things like answering emails, communicating with the team, doing all those things, especially you know before the rest of the world starts getting going. And then focusing on actually using your day for proactive things that lead to bottom line increases in sales or bottom line increases in whatever your goals are, led to big, big results. So I'm talking about, I used to spend all day on chat or on Slack or on email handling requests and vendor issues and replying. And then I said, all right, I'm going to do it all before 9 a.m., get to work at 10, and then from 10 to 5, focus on ad generation, focus on sales calls, focus on outbound prospecting things. For me, it worked, it worked really well, and she was doing the same thing with her clients. So we brought her into Pavlock and said, all right, we're going to create a, a private coaching program called Productive Entrepreneur. So what we did is we took the same kind of infrastructure, the same idea that I just explained, where we take entrepreneurs who, I mean, you're one of them. You, you typically know what you need to do, but sometimes you just don't do it. It's hard to stay accountable to some of the tasks that you need to do. What we did is we created a very small program, very simple. Start off with a morning routine and three tasks you're going to do each day. You make a commitment to those tasks that you're going to do. You write it in, the, in our app because it's a little software. Before bed, you're going to do three things tomorrow, and then tomorrow you do them. It's that simple. The massive ramifications of actually doing that are pretty big of like pre-committing to something and then doing it, it has like not just the effect of doing those three things, but over time, those three things become bigger and bigger and bigger because you know what you're capable of. And you start to have a lot of self-growth and also like self-confidence from actually achieving things you set up for yourself. So the ramifications become kind of major. So we started, we started this program with just a few clients and it was pretty cool to watch it happen. Like we had this one client who, um, he ran like an SEO biz and he was doing exactly what I said, handling customer complaints and handling employee issues all day. And so we did exactly what I did, which was like started by batching off all of his work earlier in the morning. Then he got to work and he's like, yo, I have nothing to do at work whatsoever. I had nothing to do. I did it all. We said, all right, what, what could you do to build the business, to work on the business on, in it? And he's like, all right, well, I could try to get more clients. And we're like, how would you do that? Well, I could do outbound requests, ask for referrals, and then start canvassing for new customers. Within four weeks, he closed his first six-figure client. Within six weeks, he closed two six-figure clients. Now it's been, I think, four or five months, and he's, I think, five or five X'd his business, and he's grown his staff from 15 to 30 people. And all he did was not do bullshit during the day. Just focus on big wins during the day and get his shit out of the way before nine. So it was really, really cool to see that happen, and we built this coaching program. It's going very well. That's fascinating. Now, is the coaching program integrated with the hardware as well? Yeah, so the coach is able to see what you're doing through the app, and then they're able to send you vibrations when you're doing a good job and send you zaps if you need to pay attention or get back on task. Oh, I see. Okay, so it's a communications device in that sense because it's sending that signal. Yep, exactly. It's a way to like bring a person there with you. It's it's a way to make the coach be actually physically there with you in the room. Fascinating. Now, when you sought out coaching yourself, was this before Pavlock or was this after you'd already started Pavlock? It was during. It was like three years ago. Yeah, okay. three years ago. Okay, and so at, before that, had you done any any work with coaches yourself? I had been a coach, but I never hired a coach. So I, in my old blog, I used to teach people how to create online courses. So I would be a coach for people who were trying to build their online course. I see. But you had never sought out coaching for your, for your own. I'm not. But it's something that you've, you've incorporated into your life now. Yeah, absolutely. 
I work with our Pavlov coach as my coach. I found that to be actually kind of troublesome when you start working with your own staff or when you start working with your own friends as coaches. There's always a problem with becoming friends with your coach. It kind of creates like a feeling of you don't have to do the work. So I try to be careful of that. But uh, the way that I've solved it for myself is through adding bets. So one of the core things that we do at our company, especially for form, forming good habits, is we create betting pools. Like if you commit to going to filling out your morning routine, for example, yeah. every day that you fail, you lose somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 volts or $1 and $10 a day. And every day that you succeed, you win back your bet plus the volts or money from people who failed. So it's a betting pool. So if you don't go, you lose money. But if you do go, you win money from people yeah. who failed. So that we found that to be a really, really effective way to kind of remove you know, you, you can cheat a coach and you can cheat a friend. Be like, oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't do it today. But you can't cheat the bet. Like, if you put down a dollar and the dollar's gone, it's like, all right, man, you didn't make it, but I'm taking your money. Like, that's it. Yeah. So I found that to be a really effective way to depersonify yeah. sort of uh, human relations. Is there a, an exchange rate at this point between volts and dollars? You can buy in at a dollar to a thousand. You can't cash out at the moment. You can use the currency in the system to buy new apps, buy new courses, and buy other stuff within our product. But you can't cash out the money at the point, at this current moment. In the future, we'll make it so you can actually sell volts to other users who are coming in the system. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I can see how that, they can kind of personalize it. And it also t- touches on that fear of loss that people have natively. Yeah, exactly. It's really interesting, man. Like, I can't wait until, I'm like a little freaked out about when it actually becomes a currency because you start having actual economic issues, like people cheating, like no one really cheats right now because it's a point system. So like, all right, I could cheat my morning routine, but really like I'm cheating myself. But once it's like real money, people will fucking game the system. And, uh, and so we are like going out of our way to make sure that like I, 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 I'm trying to be slow with it, especially as crypto's in this current, you know, well, uh, we got offered in 2017, we got offered above $30 million to ICO our currency. Yeah, we were about to do it. And I decided that like if we did it at that time, we would be creating sort of a speculative currency that wouldn't have the actual goals I had built into it. If we built a system that would that went up and then crashed, it wouldn't have the long-lasting potential of what I'm trying to do. In a lot of ways, I regret that decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, $30 million is $30 million. $30 million would have been nice. You know, it would have been seven now, but whatever. It's still $7 million. That's $7 million. exactly right. <laughs> But um, on the other hand, it's like, you know, I think I made the right choice for the long term, which is that this thing is going to it's going to be much bigger than a small speculative currency. Sure. And it sounds like you could have if you'd wanted to to tie it into these things, you could have tied it into Ethereum or something. Yeah, yeah. I was built. We built it and designed it to be an ERC-20 token, but we cut the connection before we did the launch. So it's ready to go. Like the day that we decide to go, it's ready to go. The white paper's all done. We even had some investors on board, but we're not going to launch it until it's the right time. And it's definitely not the right time. I view it as once we can build a profitable company from like, um, imagine we have, you know, $2 million a month coming in in revenue. Once you have that much coming through the system as a flow intake, and you start having people who bought the product earning volts in order for using the system, you can really rapidly convert that. So those $2 million rather than going to me can flow through those users. And those users can start selling the currency to the new incoming users by actually making the purchase price in volts. And so suddenly it becomes like the economy is built with our product price as the, the core infrastructure. So that's kind of the way that I want to build the currency into a virality is allow old existing users to sell into new incoming users as the product price. Fascinating. I, I can see how that can leverage the enthusiasm of the people who started off right away yeah. and while also tying into the, the desires of the people who are trying to get involved. 
Exactly. That's our ultimate goal. That's very cool. So you do see a direction where the company needs to move next. Right now, you're getting out of your final debt. You've started getting some profitability on a quarterly basis or on a monthly basis. How do you see yourself going from where you are right now to that 500 employees that you said in a couple of years? Yeah, I think that's a big question. The, the ultimate answer is, I don't know, where we, we just hit this. I mean, to be clear, hitting a level of profitability for a hardware company is extremely rare and very difficult. So getting there is something that like I, I need to give myself a little more credit for and be a little more proud of because you know as soon as we hit profitability, I was instantly stressed in a weird way where I was less stressed before and now more stressed. So it's a very strange backwards thing from my own my own mindset, fear of abundance or something, fear of success. Well, so I'll tell you what we did first. As soon as we hit profitability, the first thing we focused on is what is making us profitable. The big thing was Facebook ads that were targeted at helping people wake up early. That's what was working. No matter what I try to do, the answer is still clear. It's like double down on what's working. So until we've paid off our loans and have half a million dollars in the bank and are on track to do you know, at least $5 million in revenue a year, or at least double what we're at right now, it would be stupid to change course. So I'm actively resisting changing course at this moment. So the way that we try to process this is through kind of a, um, can't show my screen, but what do you call it? A growth hacking or growth marketing mindset. So I'll take you on a walk through our funnel. So our current major funnel that drives a good majority of our revenue, I think, is this Facebook ad that is driving traffic. It's a Facebook ad that says the anti-snooze. And from that ad, it drives traffic to a long form sales page, like a thousand words. So medium form sales page. That sales page links them to the Shopify product page, and then the Shopify product page goes to the cart and then to the checkout, right? So you get like a three to five step funnel, depending yeah, on your different So we took a growth marketing aspect. There's a great book I read called Hacking Growth. This guy talks about how some of the best companies, Facebook, Twitter, Google, started doing something called growth hacking, where they built growth teams. And these growth teams were interdisciplinary, interdepartmental teams that have a goal. So the goal is we want to increase growth in either there's acquisition, activation, and retention. So those are the three sort of time periods of a customer. So you new cut. So if you imagine from like a SaaS product, so a SaaS product would be something like, what's a good Salesforce, Slack. Slack is a good example. Sure. Any of those online services. Any online service. So you take acquisition as someone like is going from never hearing about you in the past to hearing about you and signing up for your free trial. So that's acquisition. Then activation is getting them to actually put in their credit card. And then retention is getting them to stay and not churn, right? So those are your three time periods of a customer. From our product, we have a sort of a different model. It's an e-commerce product. So we might take acquisition as when they purchase the product, activation as them using it for the first 30 days, and retention as them using it after 30 days. And so we said, all right, these are our three standpoints. So we're going to focus one quarter on each of these different concepts. So to us, the first quarter of last the Q2, which just started, is focused all around acquisition. So how do we get more sales? That's it. And we have this core funnel, which I just explained. Add to landing page, to product page, to checkout. And so what we did is we created a big list of ideas. What can we optimize on these specific pages that are going to be possible to profit off of? And so we said, all right, now we're only looking at customers coming through this funnel. What are 30 to 50 different experiments, growth experiments we can run to improve revenue without changing anything major? No big changes of directions, but just A, B adjustments. And we started off with stuff like changing the price, testing the size of the cart being bigger, checking the size of the destination on adding upsells and downsells, et cetera. And we put those all inside of this 
table, which has three different columns. The first table column is the impact we think it'll have, the confidence we think it'll work, and the ease of implementation or the difficulty it will be to make it happen. So impact, confidence, ease of implementation. Average those numbers and you get a score for all these ideas. If the score is higher than eight out of 10, then we test it. So what we've been doing is every week we have one to two tests that we run on our current acquisition flow. So if you, for example, if you go to pavlock.com forward slash transform dash V1, you're going to see the landing page from our ads. That is the most updated one. We did one small test. If you happen to go to the website, pavlock.com forward slash transform dash V1. At the top, you're going to see this header bar where it says, well, there's a video and some text at the top. Before we didn't have that, but someone said, let's try throwing up a, a header bar with a video and a little learn more button. And so we did. And in one day, we increased our revenue by 40%. We ran that A-B test for a week and it increased revenue by 40%. It's amazing how effective that stuff can be when you target it well. It's interesting because it's not like changing the color of a button. Like it's like changing the look and feel of a page from like, it used to look like a salesy sales letter. And now it looks like, a, oh, wait, there's a banner. Oh, okay. There's a video. I always hate those people who say A-B testing red versus green causing 40% results. It's usually <laughs> BS. And also a lot of tests will look really good at the beginning and then like boomerang back. Yeah, you need enough data in order to make sure that they make sense. Does your company use a service or a tool for for doing these A-B tests? Yeah, Google Website Optimize. Google Website Optimize, okay. Yeah, they have a free free service. You create a redirect link that tests revenue against two things. A-B testing is really good for incremental revenue, but it's never going to 10x your business. You know, you can't A-B test yourself to a new business model. So you have to be very careful with, like a lot of people will just be like, oh, just test it. Well, you can't just fucking test things. Like testing things requires weeks of data, which means that if you're testing something, there's an opportunity cost of not testing something else. And secondly, if you're testing multiple things, you're also not thinking a bigger picture outside the box. Like if you're selling enterprise products or like you're A-B testing a better email service provider or a better email client, you're never going to make the leap to inventing Slack. You know, like that's a whole different mindset. You can't A-B test giant changes like that. So that's an important thing that people need to look at. Where are they putting themselves in the box? That's true. And as the leader, you don't really want to necessarily get your head bogged down too much in those A-B tests, but you need staff working on that sort of thing. Exactly. The ultimate ideal for me would be to hire an excellent head of marketing or, or marketing director that could run these for me weekly without me being too involved, which is where the next step would be for us. That, so the answer to, the, to what you were saying is I'm running these for the next rest of the quarter. This quarter is about doubling down on what we have without making any massive changes. We know it works, so let's optimize and get those numbers up. You know, if we can get 40% results from one or two tests, if we can get two or three more of those tests, we're talking about doubling our revenue. Once we're doubling our revenue, we're flying. From there, we can start hiring a head of marketing or VP of marketing to run all these tests and run different sort of, you know, we're doing Facebook ads now, but what happens if we were to do YouTube ads? There's a lot of space for video there with Pavlock. Influencer ads, all that stuff. While I focus on the stuff that I think I'm best at, which is product and making our product better. So focusing on, my, on, on building a better hardware and building better software application. And I understand that one, one of the metrics that you're using for, for evaluating the company is not necessarily just the revenue, but it's the number of bad habits that people have broken. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, percentage, we've actually switched a lot. We have a number of bad habits as a, a core goal, but I realize in the same way that overscaling a company might look really large on the top line, but really bad on the bottom line, like increasing revenue, but you reduce profit. In the same way, if you increase the number of bad habits you change, you also reduce the percentage of people that change bad habits. You know, if we have a, a million people who quit smoking, but half of them fail, is that better or worse than 100% of a thousand people quitting smoking? 
I'm not sure the answer, but I do know that it's a lot easier to scale up from high percentages than it is to scale down from low percentages. Yeah, well, I remember earlier in this conversation, you mentioned that you had a 90% success rate among the people who've adopted the Pavlock. Among the people who go through the five-day program. So getting people to actually go through the five-day program is sometimes hard. But that's why we started implementing coaching. That's why we started implementing accountability, started implementing bigger procedures that make sure the onboarding phase occurs. So in a lot of ways, I'm very scared of scaling rapidly because I said earlier, you know, maybe fear of abundance or whatever. But also, I think that there's a fundamental beauty or value to starting small and optimizing your processes rapidly. So after we finish this acquisition phase, I mentioned we focused the second stage, uh, Q3, is growth hacking, growth marketing goal around hacking the activation phase. So that's how do we get people who buy the product to use the product? That's a whole different game. That's very different than getting someone to put the buy button, right? That's very different. That's like, getting. do they get a phone call as soon as they get the product? Do they get uh, added to an accountability group? Do they get reminders? Are they getting vibrations? What is the goal to make sure that people actually use the product? I think my skill set is much better. And I think the, the way the company will succeed is that not just by getting sales, but by getting customers who use and fully use the product and get addicted to the product in the way that we want them to quit the addictions to their habits. Right, and eventually those people become your evangelists and they're the ones who are out there promoting the product. That's the path. That's the only path that there can be. It makes a lot of sense. I love how big and audacious your vision is for all of this. And it's not something I would have expected going into this. So I'd love to find out how can people find out more about Pavlock and find out more about you and your your vision and your goals. Sure. So you can check out my TED Talk if what we were talking about with Volts is, is interesting. That's just Google TEDx Manish. My name is spelled M-A-N-E-E-S-H. And I think you're going to put a link in the show notes. If you check out pavlock.com, that's P-A-V-L-O-K.com, six letters, P-A-V-L-O-K. That's our website. If you're interested in coaching, if you have a business of your own and you want to start scaling or start improving your accountability and getting stuff done, check out the link at the top that says coaching. Sign up for a free call. You'll get to meet our Pavlock head coach. And besides that, you can follow me on my, on my account on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash M-S-E-T-H. Well, Manisha, really a pleasure meeting you. And thank you so much for sharing your, your weird and audacious and exciting, the things you're working on, all of this stuff. Thank you so much. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.